Well, keep all that in mind as we explore the story of Jonah this morning. It's a familiar story, but it's one that uh, if we look at it more closely, there are always other meanings that we can get, and hopefully those meanings will be ones that are uh, important to you and ones that will hit home as well, ones that you can apply to your daily living. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given to us to step into your word this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to worship together, to sing your praises together, to pray together, to give our offerings together. And now as we contemplate your word, may it hit home with us. And may you not leave us off the hook either. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, uh, I picked Jonah in this Day in the Life series to focus on, and I didn't really think about it at the time, but as I did think about it a little bit more, uh, I realized that Jonah was the very first sermon that I ever preached. Uh, I was 18, uh, 1972, and uh, I remember working on that for weeks, the, the Sermon was about 10 or 12 pages long, and I delivered it in seven minutes flat. (laughs) I don't think I took a breath. That will not be the case today. You're going to get a longer than a seven-minute sermon, unfortunately for you, maybe. Well, what was it like to be Jonah? You know, what was it like to to, uh, spend a day with Jonah? Can you imagine spending a day with Jonah... You know, I think it would have been pretty good, at least at the beginning, before the book of Jonah. And, you know, we really don't know too much. i got to turn this on, don't I? All right. We don't know uh, that much about Jonah. We're not really given a whole lot of information. In fact, he's mentioned, Jesus mentions him in the New Testament, but as far as the Old Testament is concerned, we're really not given a whole lot of information about Jonah. He's mentioned in one, one other verse, and that verse is found in 2 Kings. Oh, that's, that's, there you go. Jonah is a short chapter also. I wanted to mention that. It's, uh, he's one of the minor prophets. Um, you know, you have the major prophets, and then you have the minor prophets. The only difference is the length of their book, you know, the length of the book about them or the uh, length of the book that someone wrote, that they wrote. So we have this, this verse in 2 Kings where, where Jonah is mentioned. Um, you see the word Jonah there is, is highlighted. We see that he was the son of a Mittai, that his hometown was Gath Helper, which is not too far from Nazareth. And, and Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, and he gave a very favorable prophecy. It was a very accurate prophecy, too, that certain territories would be returned to Israel. So I can surmise, therefore, that that Jonah would have been popular. He delivered a very favorable prophecy. So I think it would have been pretty good to spend a day with Jonah. You know, think about that. What kind of prophecy do prophets usually or typically foretell? Well, there's usually a lot of gloom and doom. And, you know, there's uh, some condemnation, and you sprinkle it with some consequences, and you have a typical Old Testament prophecy. Prophets were not popular 
They just simply were not. They were often deposed and persecuted. In fact, they were often killed. Many were killed by the people to whom they were sent to prophesy. You know, Jesus made mention of this in Matthew 23, where he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned the messengers sent to you. In fact, the prophet Zechariah, at the command of the king, was stoned in the very court of the temple. But Jonah, you see, initially Jonah was selected to deliver a favorable prophecy. His words would have been celebrated, especially after they had come to pass. You know, many prophets who, when called by God, have had a difficult time accepting that call. They resisted. Some didn't feel that they were worthy. Others were really fearful of the negative response that they anticipated from the people, and, and many times they were right. You know, I'm thinking that Jonah would have welcomed his initial assignment to tell the people and their king that they were going to be getting back certain territory that they had lost, that had been captured and taken away from them. I can't help but think and wonder if Jonah had become accustomed to the notoriety. I can't help but think that Jonah liked being popular, liked being a part of the the in-group. His name, after all, was, was associated with positive gain, success, and progress. And then it all changed. It all changed. And that's where the book of Jonah comes in. Look at the first uh, two verses in uh, Jonah, the first chapter. Jonah received another assignment. He was to go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it. And God was concerned because their wickedness had come before him. This assignment also was coming directly from the Lord, but apparently it was not to Jonah's liking. And if you look at verse 3, it didn't take him very long to decide that he was going to run away. Nineveh is located in modern-day Iraq and is the city of Mosul now. You probably heard about Mosul in the news. The Ninevites were the enemies of Israel, so why in heaven's name would God want to send Jonah there? Why would Jonah go and minister to these pagan dogs? At least that's what his reasoning was. So instead, Jonah engaged in avoidant behavior and headed in the opposite direction from Nineveh. We know that he was in his hometown because of some other verses later in the, in the book. And Nineveh would have been to the north and, and, and east. Jonah travels to the south and west. And he goes to Joppa. Joppa is a seaport on the Mediterranean. Today, Joppa is a beautiful location. I took this picture in 2012 when Josh Bitework and I were there in Israel. And it was our last full day in Israel, and we enjoyed a great fish dinner. And I wonder if Jonah had a fish dinner in Joppa. Not knowing, of course, that he would become a fish dinner, but we're getting ahead of the story. So Jonah paid the fare, and he boarded a cargo ship for Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was. It was either in northern Africa or somewhere along the coast of of southern Spain, 
um, archaeological finds indicate that trade had been well established in the whole area shown by this map by as early as 1100 B.C. And Jonah was active uh, later than that in the mid-700 B.C.s. Um, we do know this. It was, Tarshish was as far as you could go. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get as far away from God as he possibly could. And we know the story well. You know, a storm arose. The sailors were terrified. It must have been a horrific storm if they were afraid, these seasoned veterans of the sea. And they frantically threw cargo overboard in order to lighten the ship in an attempt to save it and themselves. You know, and as they were finding things to throw overboard, they found Jonah down in the hold, asleep. During this horrible storm, he was sound asleep in, in the midst of all of this excitement. And the captain of the ship is absolutely incredulous. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And we get the impression that Jonah just rolled over and went back to sleep. The sailors were desperate. And so at this point, they resorted to casting lots, which was a a way of determining who was responsible on board that ship for the calamity in which they found themselves. Common method that was used. They probably would have done it three times. And so we see God's hand in this also, because guess what? Jonah's name came up all three times. So now they were convinced that Jonah was the one, and they confront him, verses 8 through 10. They absolutely grill him. Look at all the questions that they ask Jonah. They're trying to figure out what is going on. And Jonah basically says, you know, I serve the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, the Hebrew God. And they had heard, the sailors had heard of the Hebrew God. The Hebrew God had a reputation, and they were terrified. They were absolutely terrified then. They certainly knew the power of the storm firsthand that was going on. They wanted to know what Jonah had done, but Jonah still doesn't answer them, although they did know that he was fleeing from God. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, they ask, well, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down? In other words, they want to know, well, what kind of punishment should we inflict on you so that your God will be appeased and he'll, he'll stop this storm? And Jonah said... I know it's my fault. Throw me overboard. Now, at this point, I really want to point out that Jonah is not the hero here. And the reason he is not the hero is because the only reason that he said he should be thrown overboard is because he was still unrepentant. He did not change his mind about what God had told him to do. He was willing to die rather than to admit that he was wrong and God was right. Rather than repent of his rebelliousness and have a change of heart. This is avoidant behavior at its finest. Jonah was being passive-aggressive. Now, I asked our, our resident counselor, Josh Hostetter, for a layman's working definition of passive-aggressiveness. And Josh said that was someone who does not deal directly with negative emotion like anger, hurt, 
expectations, judgments, etc. You've seen this. You know what passive-aggressive behavior is. In fact, I would be willing to bet that you're going to have some passive-aggressive family members over for the holidays. (laughs) They're not easy to deal with. Well, why is that? Well, it's because they go underground, right? With their feelings, their emotions, and so on. They don't deal with issues directly. They get subversive. You know, they can, you, know, you can see it in, in stubbornness, in procrastination. You can see it in some sullen behavior, depressed behavior, and a deliberate and repeated failure to complete tasks for which they are responsible. Does that sound like anyone you know? Well, it certainly sounds like Jonah. Now, if you're passive-aggressive, and we all have been at one time or another, let's be honest, But if that is your standard method of operation, let Jonah be a lesson to you, because this is what he does with people who are (laughs) passive-aggressive. And you know what's coming next. The sailors don't want to do it. They even try some other strategies before uh, they decide to throw Jonah overboard. But the storm continues to rage on, and they finally do. In desperation, asking the Lord to forgive them, they cast Jonah overboard, and the storm stops. Now look at the result. The sea grew calm immediately. And that made an impression on the sailors. And they were converted. Wow. All of them were converted. You know, it's just really interesting to me that Jonah would have nothing to do with the pagan Ninevites. And yet these pagan sailors really didn't want to kill him. They were trying to protect him and do what was best for him. And they only threw him overboard as a last resort. And when they see the immediate calming of the wind and the waves, they believe. And even though Jonah was totally passive-aggressive, totally uninterested in the conversion of pagans, God used him to convert the sailors. Hold that thought. Now, you know it's coming next, as the kids did, right? Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish. And chapter 2 contains Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of that fish. You know, I can't help but, but wonder, and you know, we don't have the answer to this, But if if Jonah really wanted to die, if he really, truly wanted to die, I wonder how long it was before he started to pray. (laughs) You know, was it right away? Was it after one day, after two days, maybe after three days? His prayer is one of desperation, as you look at it, as you read it. And as you read it, he really doesn't repent, which is kind of interesting. The passive aggressiveness continues, huh? He gives God the credit as the source of salvation and says that he will sacrifice to God and make his vow good. And I think the only vow that he's talking about is the vow to be a prophet. So he's going to, he's going to continue to be a prophet. I think that's what he's referring to. But he never says, God, forgive me. I was wrong. He never says those words. And basically, basically this is what he's saying. God, when things got rough, I called on you. 
That's not really saying anything. Even his prayer is passive-aggressive. And, you know, most uh, artwork depicts Jonah being spewed out on the shoreline with Nineveh right there in the background, like this old engraving. Uh, that's not really accurate. You see, even if, if the whale would have made it to the shoreline closest to Nineveh, it still would have been like 500 miles that Jonah would have had to have walked. It would take him at least a month. Thinking time, right? If Jonah would have had the right heart, if his heart would have been aligned properly. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Well, so finally he gets to Nineveh, and he begins to prophesy, and, and more than likely his message was less than enthusiastic. And the reason we know that is because of how he reacts at the end, but he probably believed one of two things. Either, one, the Ninevites are not worth the effort, or two, he believed that they were incapable of repenting and would never reform anyway. But you know what? The interesting thing about this is that he only made it partway through the city, like a third of the way through the city, and already, despite his half-hearted efforts, his message took hold, as will any message sent from God. You see, it doesn't depend on the messenger. God is God, and he can do what he wants to do. The people's reaction was almost immediate. A fast was proclaimed, and everyone from the the greatest to the least put on sackcloth, which, as I said in the children's sermon, was a sign of mourning, of repentance, of truly seeking and praying for deliverance. And then Jonah's warning got to the king. It reached even the king, and he got off of his throne, and he took off his royal robes, and he put on sackcloth, and he sat down in the ashes, sat down in the dust, which is another sign of repentance and remorse. Even the king was humbled before the Lord. And he issued the following proclamation. Even the animals were to wear sackcloth. You see, the king didn't want to, we wanted to make sure that all the bases were covered. Now, I would have liked to have seen a sheep or a cow with some sackcloth on. I think that would have really been interesting. But so, so total and so complete was their repentance. And this, friends, is the greatest revival ever recorded in history. The whole city, 120,000 people repent. That's about the size of Allentown. The whole city, everybody. And how does God respond? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And of course, Jonah is overjoyed, right? No. Look at his reaction in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I mean, think about this. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And then he says, just smite me. (laughs) Just kill me. 
I'd rather be dead. Now, why would Jonah feel this way? Here, the man has been responsible for the greatest revival in history. 120,000 people have come to the Lord. The whole city. Is it just because he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites? No, I don't think so. I think the reason that he's upset and the reason that he wants to be killed is that he thought God's idea was a bad idea. He thought that he knew better than God. And, and why would the salvation of one's enemies be a bad idea from Jonah's perspective? You know, well, think about it. You know, in those days, it was a kill-or-be-killed world. And the Ninevites were the, were the enemies of Israel. One did not nurture one's enemies. You wipe them out. That was the thinking of the day. Not God's thinking. That was the thinking of the day of the world. Obviously, Jonah did not think that the Ninevites were worth saving. And if that wasn't bad enough, now Jonah's name, the name that had been so popular with this popular prophecy back with Jeroboam II when that territory was reestablished, now Jonah's name is going to be associated with this, saving the Ninevites of all things, the enemies of Israel. You know, can you hear the people who used to be the in crowd along with with Jonah after he had done this? Way to go, Jonah. (laughs) But that reaction is is the verdict of the world and not of the Lord. You know, we view the Old Testament so many times simply as a book of judgment filled with instances of of how God uses his, his wrath and his vengeance. And the New Testament is a book of love that we say, showing the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father. But look at what God asked Jonah to do. Go to that big, wicked city of your enemies and warn them of my impending judgment. Tell them to repent so that they can be saved. Oh, and by the way, I love them. Hmm. You know, God loves our enemies just as much as he loves us. We don't like to think that way. It's really hard for us, let's be honest, to get our heads wrapped around that. But he loves the person who got the promotion when we didn't. He loves the person who makes fun of us, the person who talks behind our back, the person who cuts us off in traffic. (laughs) God loves the terrorist, the murderer, the drug dealer, the arsonist, the child abuser. And he loves them as much as he loves us. Jonah didn't understand that. Let's face it, we have a hard time with it too. But Jonah certainly didn't understand it. And you know, God tried to nudge him in the right direction, and he asked, you know, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? I don't think Jonah even heard him. The the intent of that question didn't take root at all. And Jonah's passive-aggressive behavior continues. He went to the east of the city and made a shelter for himself, and he sat and sulked, and he wanted to see what God would do. 
This is an old woodcut. You know, it kind of shows Jonas as being very pious there, doesn't it? That's not how he looked. He looked like that. He was sulking. Now, this picture's a little bit later in the story. You know, you can see the, the uh, plant there that God provided. And if you look very closely, you can see the caterpillar, the worm. But I believe that's how Jonah actually looked. Jonah actually thought, by showing his displeasure, by pitching this hissy fit, throwing a tantrum, that God would understand that Jonah was right. And he would change his mind and destroy the city. And Jonah was out there waiting for that city to just go up. He was thinking that surely God would value him, his own prophet, more than the pagans of Nineveh. But it doesn't work that way with God. All are equal in his sight. And so God attempted to teach Jonah yet another lesson. He caused this leafy vine to grow up and grow rapidly and to shade Jonah in the hot desert sun. And Jonah was happy about the plant. Made him feel good. He appreciated it. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm that chewed that plant and caused it to just die and wither. And next, God provided also a scorching east wind and a blazing hot sun so that Jonah felt faint. And once again, Jonah uses his old standby line, it would be better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Does he realize he's talking to God here? (laughs) Jonah just would not give up. His passive-aggressive method of operation was, uh, was really incessant. But God wouldn't give up either. And he continued in verses 10 and 11, the closing verses of the chapter, in dialogue with Jonah. And basically what he's saying is, what right do you have to be concerned about the plant? What right do you have to be concerned about it? You didn't send it. You didn't tend it. You didn't cause it to grow. You had nothing to do with it. And if you have concern about this plant, why shouldn't I have concern for 120,000 Ninevites and the many animals that also live in the city? Now, At that point, the book of Jonah ends. So we just leave Jonah, sitting there in the hot sun outside of Nineveh, in his little makeshift shelter. Did he have a change of heart? Here's what I think. Now, I realize you're not supposed to add to Scripture, right? But I've added a verse 12. All right? This is the DWV. Jonah 4.12. At that point, Jonah knew that God was right, but he was too proud to admit it. So he went on sulking in the hot desert sun, and God continued to try to get his message through Jonah's thick skull until the day Jonah died. (laughs) I think that's probably what happened. It's not the fairy tale ending, maybe, that you had expected or had hoped for. But, you know, I think if Jonah would have made a turnaround, I think it would have been in the book. That's what I think. I think Jonah's probably still sitting out there. I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. As long as there is life, there is hope. 
So we're, we can be hopeful. We can be hopeful. Now, this book might be called Jonah, but it's not about Jonah. No, it's about God. All the books are about God, even though they have different names. Um, throughout the story, we have several key and important messages that are communicated to us. The first is that God is a sovereign creator. This is my Father's world. You know, God created it. It belongs to him. He is in charge. And we need to live in this world knowing that truth. Jonah did not. He thought that his ideas were better than God's and that they were more important than God's. And he forgot the sovereign part, too. You know, he tried to run away from God. He tried, and we do, too. We might not get on a ship and try to go to Tarshish, but we do try to run away from God. We at least try to ignore him. We need to be present, and we need to remember that we are here to serve our Creator. And one more thing, God's plan will triumph. has to do with that sovereign part there. It will triumph. He can use us even in spite of ourselves, and he used Jonah even in spite of him, both with the conversion of the sailors and also with the greatest revival in the history of the world. Both worked through Jonah, who not only didn't get it, but he was also actively oppositional. We also see in this book that God is supreme judge. God calls the shots. If he wants the Ninevites saved, then we better work with him to get the Ninevites saved. That's what we're supposed to do. God is the one who passes judgment, not us. There you know, are things that we need to judge. There are things, decisions that we need to make, cho- make, the choices we need to make, priorities we need to set. But they all have to be made and established in light of God's word and in light of God's will. Keep in mind that God judged Jonah, too, and found him to be wanting. And the third thing that we learn in this book of Jonah is that God is the only Savior. This story is ultimately about the salvation that we find through our Heavenly Father. You know, inside the fish, Jonah prayed for it accurately. He said, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And God saved him. And as a result, Jonah was given a second chance. Jonah did not deserve the second chance. He had deliberately disobeyed God. He tried to flee from God. But God loved Jonah. Did he use his second chance well? Well, he used it well enough, (laughs) I suppose. He did, after all, affect the greatest revival in the history of the world. 120,000 people got their second chance as a result of what he did. But did Jonah use his second chance in the spirit in which it was given? No. No. As a matter of fact, Even after the success of his prophesying, his actions to go out and sulk and outside the city, it it really makes him look foolish. You know, when I think of the story of Jonah, I'm reminded of this parody of a motivational poster. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) We, (laughs) We all need to pray that that's not the purpose of our lives, don't we? You know, but God is a God of second chances. And that's what Christmas is all about. God initiating his plan of second chances 
for all of humankind. God wants to use you even when you have failed him. He is a God of new beginnings. He still loves you. He still wants you. He still has a plan for you. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of salvation made possible on Calvary's cross are punctuated by a huge exclamation point, the exclamation point of the resurrection. There is hope. There is life. There is a new beginning. There is another chance. And Jonah wasn't the first or the last. Consider the second chances that were given to all of these characters in the Bible, and this is only a partial list. It may not always be the second chance that we were hoping for or expecting, but God knows best. He is a sovereign creator. He is a supreme judge. He is our only salvation. And may each of us, each and every one of us, use the second chances that we are given to the glory of God, our creator, our judge, and our savior. Let us pray. O God of second chances and of new beginnings, here we are again. We thank you that you never give up on us. Instead, you show us a love that we and the rest of the world do not understand or deserve. Use us, Father. Make us into who you have always intended us to be. Keep us focused. Keep us open and receptive to your will and your way. But if necessary, even use us in spite of ourselves. And Father, cause us to remember when we look at the baby in Bethlehem, just how much you love us. Amen.